Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Hmm. I was uh, 19 years old uh, when I first had a conversation with someone about homosexuality. I had given a regular attender of our uh, junior high youth group a ride home one night, and a conversation on the way uh, had turned to God's love and God's love for his people. And my friend looked over at me at one point during the conversation and said, you know, Les, I don't understand God's love. I looked at him and I said, why? And as soon as I asked him why for some explanation, he started to cry. This was clearly something very deeply emotional for him. And I tried to console him the best as I could, trying to get him to talk about what he was so upset about. But finally, after some discussion, literally on our ride home, he just blurted out, He said, what I don't understand is why God would send me to hell just because I have strong feelings of love for other boys. 13 years old. Uh, I learned that day that as a minister in the ministry, that these questions as they uh, inevitably will arise are especially tricky and can be especially tricky. At the same time, I think I would be um, remiss (laughs) to go through the book of Leviticus and ignore this topic. Because there are a few sort of um, uh, political, social, emotional um, tennis balls that get bounced back and forth across lines more than this topic of the Bible's teaching about homosexuality. And I won't lie to you, I, I, am, I feel that I'm in a difficult spot Because over the few years in which I've been doing uh, campus ministry, I feel like 90% of the conversations that I have about homosexuality have fallen into one of two camps. Uh, One of two stances, if you will, in dealing with the topic. On the one hand is what I'll refer to, for lack of a better phrase, the accommodating stance. Uh, That is, these are folks who long to read the Bible in such a way that fully accepts uh, same-sex relationships, same-sex sexuality, as completely in line with God's design for human sexual expression. On the other hand, I have what I would refer to as the repellent stance. Uh, That is, people who want to repeatedly stress that since the Bible forbids homosexual acts, homosexual sex, our most urgent sort of mission as Christians is that we're supposed to make an impression on the homosexual community that we are disgusted by their behavior. Those are the two camps that 90% of my conversation ends up falling out as. And so honestly, I find myself uh, as kind of a man without a country in terms of public views on this topic. Because on the one hand, I'm simply not convinced by the accommodating crowd's reasoning about the scriptures that they refer to, not convinced of their platform. But on the other hand, I am not in the slightest bit repelled by my gay friends. So how do we come to this question and deal with it in a responsible way? Because for those of you that have been involved in RUF for some time, you know that we take passages as they come to us. And it would be irresponsible for us not to look into this topic as it comes up because we come tonight to the Bible verses 
that both sides, whether it be the accommodating stance or the repellent stance, use to sort of abuse the other side. (laughs) In other words, the accommodating folks use this passage as a way to show what an irrelevant relic these laws were of a bygone era. It's the accommodating sort of stance. But on the repellent folks' side, they use this passage to justify all sorts of derogatory attitudes and oftentimes actions. Look, y'all, I simply want to make an attempt to navigate our way through this and see what the Scripture actually really says and to avoid these two poles that I simply can't live with. Be your own judge as to whether or not I accomplish that. But in so doing, I want to look at three things. I'm going to look, first of all, at the principles explained. I'm going to look, second of all, at the objections leveled. And then third of all, at the gospel offered. Principles explained, the objections leveled, and then the gospel offered. First of all, what are the principles? Well, I think the first principle that has got to be established in this discussion is that the God of the Bible is pro-sex. Two thumbs up for sexuality in the Scripture. The reason for that, though, may not be so apparent. Theologically speaking, Christians have always taught that God is pro-sexuality because the God of the Bible is himself not merely a me, but he's also a we. That is, he is a Trinitarian God. Three persons, one essence existing forever. And as the story of the Bible goes, this God decided at some point to create mankind. But when he did so, he created, and here's the Bible's phrase, in his image. So it only makes sense that if God is going to create human beings in the image of a God who has a multiplicity of persons, that we would not, it would not be good that man should be alone. And that's exactly what it says in Genesis chapter 2, that it's not good that man should be alone. And so God creates this institution of human sexuality. Human sexuality was a, a way to proclaim to all of God's creation the nature of God's character. You've got to be settled on that. Sexuality is a means to an end, not an end in itself. We'll come back to that in a moment. For that reason, sexual union throughout the pages of Scripture has always been complementary. It has been exclusively taught as a one male, one female union. It's the way it's pictured in Scripture. In this powerful act of sexuality, God is saying, uh, saying something about his unity. In the act of sexuality, literally a man and a female are into each other right? He also says something about joy, that there's an ecstasy that happens when people are in union with each other and therefore picturing a union that we'll have with God one day, someday. That's not too graphic a language for what the Bible describes. And finally, it shows his desire for procreation. Everywhere throughout the early parts of Genesis, he says that sexuality was given to be fruitful and to multiply. And so what we find in Leviticus 18 is God simply directing laws to, to, to preserve families and to, and to keep families together. Now look, as you know, the story doesn't go well after that. Because after that creation, mankind rebels against God's design for him. And he ends up doing himself and the world around him great harm. 
And I've said this throughout this study that you've got to get a grasp on this. That when God comes and releases these Jewish people from their captivity in Egypt, he grabs them so that he may restore their humanity. That 400 years of of slavery would have inflicted upon them. And so Leviticus comes to a very broken, addicted, psychologically damaged people group on every level, not just in dealing with their sexuality. And so when God gives his admonitions to people about various forms of sexuality, it's to restore something, to protect the idea of the family. And this is the reason why in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, you get a very long list of sexual behaviors that God says will actually end up contributing to your brokenness rather than healing your brokenness. And the list is pretty extensive, to be quite frank with you. Sex with any member of your family is expressly forbidden, especially children. Uh, Sex with what the Bible refers to in Leviticus 18 with rival wives for telling the Bible's negative view of polygamy is there. Uh, Sex that would make you unclean was also forbidden. Uh, By the way, we talked about that last week, a couple weeks ago, when we talked about the clean laws, that Jesus abrogated these things. Why? Because that would mean that every time a man had sex, he would be unclean. Sex outside of marriage, or what we call adultery, is also forbidden there. Uh, Lo and behold, sex with animals is also mentioned in the midst of the list. And, as we see, it is also mentioned that homosexuality is equally forbidden in God's agenda. Now look, y'all, the reason why I'm setting it up that way is because you've got to see this information in context before you start to react to it. And when you set it in context, I think you begin to discover something that really will help you discuss this with your friends and even deal with it in your own mind. I had a number of conversations as I prepared for this text. I, I sent the text of my message tonight to uh, some gay friends that I have uh, who themselves are Christians and to, to have them look at this. They gave me some great pointers. I also had a chance to speak with people who deal with homosexuality on a very daily basis. Uh, my friend David Jones is the RUF campus minister uh, at Stanford University out in um, San Francisco. And in talking with David, he had some extremely helpful information about setting this thing in context. He said, look, there's oftentimes a great misunderstanding among the gay community that he ends up dealing with about sexuality itself. He said, and, he said, and he told me, he said, look, whether it's heterosexuality or homosexuality, it must be made clear that sexuality itself won't make you a whole person. It's not intended to be a whole person. Why? Because it wasn't designed to do. Remember what we said. Sex was given to us to picture something. The sign cannot be the same thing as the signified. In our sexual union, we are saying something about the nature of God. But when we are finally with God, Jesus explains, people will neither be married or given in marriage. The sexuality that we know is a pointer to something that we'll experience later on. So therefore, when sex was intended to celebrate your wholeness, not establish it. And we say this because there's many in the homosexual community that seek out relationships with other homosexual people because of a desire to be open, and that is true to who they really are. 
They feel deceived on the inside and they want to be whole, to feel as if they're whole and not being deceptive. And I think this is one of the reasons why the reaction from the gay community can be so vicious towards those who deny its legitimacy. And the reason is because they feel that something that is essential to their wholeness is being uh, denied them. But all I simply want to say is, is that God never intended sex to be that way. And by the way, this applies to every one of you who struggle with heterosexual uh, uh, inappropriate behaviors. They are both said to say, God is saying, look, this is not the last thing that will ever happen to you is sexuality in general. Now, secondly, that brings me to the second point, is that for that reason, defining yourself by your sexuality is ultimately going to end up demeaning your humanity. You see? In other words, you are first and foremost, before anything else, an image bearer of God in the Christian worldview. You are not a sex machine, a person who can have sex. A sexual being, that's what I meant, sex machine. Hmm. Whatever. So look, do me a favor if we can. Let's, I think this means that there needs to be grace extended from both sides. On the one hand, I think that there needs to be some grace from the homosexual community that's extended to the heterosexual community. Because in many ways, they're simply saying that there's, there's, a, there's an attempt that if we believe what we believe about sexuality, to simply preserve your humanity. But at the same time, from the heterosexual community, extend some grace to the homosexual community that when you begin to talk with them about their lives, you're going to something very personal that they, are, that they believe goes very much to the center of their own wholeness, whether they're mistaken by that or not. So the principle as it's established is set within a broad context of the Scripture's teaching on sexuality. And it's not very long before you start to talk about that, before there are lots of objections that people will level against you. I have identified the top three that I've gotten over the last 15 and a half some odd years of campus ministry. Let me throw out a couple of these. The first one, there are many people that will come to me and as soon as they hear this, they'll say something like this. Oh yeah, that's just your interpretation, Les. I know scholars that say the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. Um, I've always found this to be a very interesting objection because as it seems to me, it only sounds like people who level that objection are saying that just because someone has a different view of a certain text of scripture, that therefore it is immediately just as acceptable as someone else's. Uh, Look, please follow me on this. That does not necessarily follow. (laughs) In other words, it's pop, just because someone has a different view of a text of Scripture doesn't make that view just as legitimate. It's possible that someone's view of Scripture could be wrong. <laughs> Look, for, uh, for you know, ages, scholars thought that the world was flat. Uh, and yet, what? Better scholarship proved it wrong. My admonition for people like that is to say, look, study for yourself. Look into the Scriptures yourself to see whether or not the Bible actually teaches this or not. The second objection, though, I think is a bit more complicated, and it goes like this. People look and say, oh, really? Um, I see, Les. Well, if you're going to sort of take the whole view of homosexuality as being applicable to us today, I hope you don't have any shirts that have two different kinds of threads in it, because, you know, that's condemned in the book of Leviticus, too. 
And they'll usually go through some of the weird texts that we come to, that we've come to in this discussion, uh, that sort of tend to teach those things. All right. In my opinion, this is the most popular one given. I posted on the RUF Old Miss website uh, a little clip from the West Wing. Some of you may have seen it, where you've got a very classic treatment of this coming uh, from that TV show. I'd commend it to you to see sort of how classically this is phrased. But look, I want to use my words very carefully here for just a moment. Because we do not follow commands as they come to us in the Old Testament uh, that have been either expressly done away with or clearly fulfilled by the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? In other words, there are commands in the book of Leviticus that we don't follow anymore. The ones that he told us not to follow anymore and the ones that he clearly fulfilled we don't follow. In other words, it tends to be a very... That's what I'm looking for, elementary view of the book of Leviticus for people who offer up this objection. In other words, you know, Jesus expressly uh, discarded the clean laws and the food laws, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. And the laws that pertain to Israel specifically as sort of a, um, you know, geopolitical body, those were also discarded. But the principles that lie behind those particular laws and the ones that Jesus reiterated and reissued himself, still have just as much force for the people of God today. That's the way Christians have always looked at these laws, to say, look, it may not be this exact application, but there might be an idea behind it that we do need to follow. So what I'm saying is, is when you take the Bible's consistently positive stance toward heterosexual union, and combine it with the fact that in Matthew 19, Jesus can, uh, reaffirms the institution of marriage in this particular form. You see that, 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 in my opinion, there is no compelling reason for us to think that the Bible's view of homosexual unions would have changed. Again, with the coming of Jesus would not have been something that would change. I would even say that even more compelling along these lines is the fact that Paul specifically mentions homosexuality in his instruction to the church at Corinth and Ephesus for that matter. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, and here's the phrase of controversy, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look, at this point what you get is there are scholars who object and they talk about that little phrase that we have in, 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 uh, in the text in front of you, if you're looking at 1 Corinthians 6, men who practice homosexuality. They'll look and say, look, that is a Greek word behind there that we have no idea what it means. And it's irresponsible for translators to say that it means homosexuality because we just don't know. Now, here's the thing. They are partly right. The word that we have there is indeed, we understand, a made-up word by the Apostle Paul. It's clear. In other words, we don't have any other text earlier than 1 Corinthians that actually used this word. It's one of Paul's sort of coined words. But now bear with me for a second. And I promise you, this is not above your heads. You can deal with this. <laughs> Look down, if you will, at point two on your outlines that I gave you to follow me on this. The word that's used that we have translated, men who practice homosexuality, is the Greek word arsenikoitai. That word is the made-up word that I'm referring to. We don't get that word in other places. 
But to look and to say that because we've not seen that word before, that we suddenly have no idea what it means, is, in my opinion, in my opinion, intellectually dishonest. Look, y'all, years before Jesus was born, there were a group of scholars who sat down and translated the Old Testament into Greek. It's a document that we call the Septuagint. But if you look up Leviticus 18.22, our text tonight, in that translation of the Greek, do you know what the phrase, lay with a man as with a woman, looks like? Well, you've got it printed there. Arsenus koiten. Now look, you don't have to have studied Greek to see that Paul was clearly thinking about that verse when he came up with the word arsenokoitai. They're way too close. You can see them just in the transliterations you have in front of you. Paul is an Old Testament scholar, y'all. He would have remembered these things, and he would have had this passage in mind. Look, the bottom line is that Paul assumes that these sexual commands were still to be considered as binding throughout the church age. That's why I'm not convinced yet of the sort of accommodationist viewpoint. Third objection, and this is one that goes a little more personally and one that I want to deal with really the rest of our discussion. What basically people say to me at this point is they say, Les, why would you do this? Because the only thing that you're going to accomplish by all this is more discrimination. The only thing that you're going to do is you're going to perpetuate the advances that we've tried to make in all kinds of civil rights discussions since the 50s and 60s. Look, y'all, and I would say to you that you are hopelessly naive if you think that homosexuals are not regularly discriminated against. In my ten and a half years here at Ole Miss, I have heard all manner of shocking abuse that has been leveled against the gay community since I've been here. And people look at me and say, Les, what possible good could come from stressing that the Bible, in fact, calls homosexuality a sin? But look, I would simply offer to that objection this. If you think that our teaching tonight would somehow cause people to extend ungracious attitudes towards the gay community, then you need to go back and listen to our entire study that we've done this semester. Because look, there is no theme, I would argue, that has been more consistently pounded in our study than this refrain, that we are all hopelessly sinful people. All of us heterosexual and homosexual alike. And what I would suggest to you is properly understood, it will always lead to a posture of humility towards all people and a way of dealing with them and their sexual brokenness, whether it's of the heterosexual or homosexual variety, with a distinctive care and support that's very distinctive. And that leads me to my last point. What then does that distinctive posture look like? Because don't be fooled, y'all, there is gospel here. There's gospel in the book of Leviticus, especially when we start to see the way in which Jesus dealt with sexually broken people. In John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11, we don't have time to read it, but Jesus encounters a mob who is determined to execute a sexual offender. Uh, In this case, it was heterosexual uh, uh, sin. It was a woman who was caught in adultery. Uh, my good friend, someone who else I can, uh, uh, consulted uh, in this discussion, Steve Froelich, who's a pastor of a church uh, up in Ithaca, New York, <clears throat> working at Cornell, brought out some great points about the way in which Jesus handles this sexually broken situation. He lists about six of them. Listen to how great these are. The first thing he says, and these are great points of application for us, is that Jesus is always ready to indict religious hypocrisy. 
In other words, he goes to the Pharisees. You know how the story goes. We have a woman who is caught in adultery. And the Pharisees, the religious elite of their day, have dragged this woman out into the public square, condemned her without trial, and raised their stones to begin the process of execution by stoning. And Jesus walks into the middle of them and says to them, Any of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, every one of this, the sort of religious elite puts down their rocks and walks away. And he looks at the woman and says, where are your condemners? And she says, they're all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Look, that's a beautiful story of the way in which Jesus deals with people. Because notice that he's able to go to the Pharisees and their hypocrisy and say, look, you have got to apply judgmentalism to yourself first. I was talking with uh, the pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Sandy Wilson, a while back about this topic. And Sandy made a very interesting point to a Sunday school class I was listening to where he said, look, for the people that attend my church, to be honest with you, my homosexual community are, the, are vibrant, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, faith, struggling, interested, engaged, serving people. He said, honestly, the vast majority of trouble that I have in my church come from the heterosexuals in my church. They're the ones that are actually trampling on God's law in ways in which my gay community would never do as much. Look, y'all, please, please consider this an appeal on behalf of the gay community here at Ole Miss. Put away your condescending homophobia. It's helping no one and actually is doing great harm to lots of people. Look, secondly, Jesus says, though, that he opposes violence in any way. I have to mention this. Jesus opposes any kind of violence that we would level against someone that we find unacceptable spiritually, socially, dare we say sexually. And it is an unequivocal wrong, Jesus is saying, for either side to use violence against either class of people. Jesus is not afraid to risk his own safety He could have been condemned himself by interceding for these people. Look, y'all, it may be that some of the greatest ministry that you offer to someone is by stopping the kind of discrimination that happens. Thirdly, though, notice, though, that Jesus upholds the law. He's not afraid to look at the woman and say, go and sin no more. In other words, he's not afraid to say that your behavior is still, though, not something that is sexually compatible with God's design for your humanity. He's not afraid to do this. Now, I recognize the fact that for the gay community, they look at that and say that inevitably will lead to discrimination. And do you know what? I actually have a suspicion about that. I suspect that one of the reasons why the gay community thinks that that will be so natural to happen is because they have so rarely heard from the lips of Christians that they believe themselves to be equally sinful. In other words, because they've never heard it from the Christian community who have soft-pedaled their own heterosexual sin, that, 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 that they think that they will always be standing in judgment over a gay person's sin. Hey, look, y'all, get over it. We're all in the same boat when it comes to the Bible scrutiny on things like this. Fourthly, Jesus holds all of them accountable, not only for their actions, but also for their motives. Look, Jesus is incredibly judicious. He doesn't look at her behavior any differently simply because it was consensual or because it was um, well-reasoned. Look, but also he doesn't exonerate the evil of the Pharisees just because they feel themselves to be superior. 
or because they're legally correct in their understanding of the viewpoint. He justifies neither. He comes with instruction for both, but with grace for the broken. Which brings me to my fifth point. Look, y'all, Jesus calls for repentance. He offers forgiveness. And he offers out a hope for change. And I simply offer this to all of us who come in here with any given level of sexual brokenness. He offers to all people a hope that there is forgiveness that there's acceptance, that there's a way of coming in and being accepted into his community that can actually change us. A good friend of mine who I go see in New York City every other year uh, and who comes and actually gets a chance to speak uh, with some of the people that I bring up there to go see him brought out something very interesting in all this. Because over the years he's taught me to say that you've got to be careful how you talk about repentance among the gay community. Because a lot of heterosexuals would like to say, well, you know, that's fine. As long as they're willing to, you know, never, ever, ever, ever think about another man as long as they live. To which my response would be like, okay, that's nice. Exactly what other sin do you apply that kind of standard to? When was the last time you sat at the doors of your church and looked at the banker as he walked through your front door and said, okay, you can come in here as long as you never, ever, ever, ever show a piece of greed ever again. Don't do that now, do we? Look, we got to be very careful. Repentance, I would simply, and this requires a much larger discussion that we can't have here. But repentance and transformation of a gay Christian does not mean that you suddenly start lusting for the opposite sex. You know, get married and live and have 3.2 kids in the suburbs. It's not what I'm saying. What it does mean is that it, it marks out a life of a struggle with repentance. Just like every Christian. In other words, there's no fundamental difference between the struggle that's set in front of a gay Christian and the struggle that's set before a heterosexual Christian to live a life of constantly repenting, saying, God, how would you instruct me here? Which brings me to my last point, the sixth one. Jesus knows how to intervene. He knows how to preserve this woman's life. And he entrusts her to God's final vindication for judgment. Look, Christians' first response to your gay friends, please listen, listen, listen. Your first response to your gay friends ought to be to enter those people's lives, to learn to listen well, to learn to listen to the things that are going on. Look, there's a great struggle of shame that sort of covers over our society's view of that particular thing. To give a listening ear for someone to be honest with you is pure medicine, I promise you. And learn to share those struggles with them. To look and say, you know what? My struggles may be different, but I've got the same stuff going on inside of me. And to stand in front of them on an equal spiritual footing. Does it mean that you intervene when you see destructive patterns? Of course you do. In the same way that you hope that they would intervene when they see your heterosexual destructive patterns. Look, my friends. Finally, there's three things. And I remember I had an old youth director who told me about this whenever I was dealing with some counseling issues. He said, the way in which you begin to deal with people who are struggling is three things. You encourage, you encourage, and you encourage. Look, y'all, there is a sense in which Jesus climbs up onto the cross at the end of his mission on earth and says, I am going to bear in my body a physical brokenness. His body is broken. 
He's cut open on the side to where his very heart comes out of his body. And he bleeds for his people because he's saying, I am trying to bear in my own person your fornication. I am becoming sin for you so that I can take away the ultimate sense of alienation that you feel. Look, y'all, the hope of Christianity is, is that Jesus comes to repair all broken, broken sexuality because he bore the brokenness in himself. And in doing that, he suddenly takes out the sting of my own brokenness. And I can stand up and actually admit to people to say, yes, I struggle with this. This is my thing that God has put in front of me. And whether it's heterosexual fornication, whether it's um, out-of-marriage adultery, whether it's any kind of bizarre, illicit behavior, whether it's homosexuality, we can all come to the cross as mutually broken people and love one another to healing. I don't know, y'all. I feel like I'm a man without a country in saying that. But I hope it's what the Bible teaches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you give us the grace to be able to see a vision of you that we very well might not be able to see under normal circumstances. A vision of you that would see you as offering hope and yet challenge to all of us. Lord Jesus, would you allow, first of all, for there to be a great wave of repentance that goes through this room. That all of us who have thought that it was appropriate to make a big deal about people knowing that whatever we say, we're not gay. Would you allow us to repent and to look and to stop condescending to those whom honestly can be dear, encouraging Christian friends around us? Could you give us repentance first? And Lord Jesus, I pray for my, for my gay friends that you would give them grace as well, that you would hold them very close and grant them the grace of a hope that they could be honest and not afraid of their own struggles and that there might be the grace of healing in them just as much as there would be healing for us in whatever level that looks like. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift that you have given to us in the gay community. Because of their struggle, they have produced for us great art. They have produced for us a vision of what it means to struggle with grace. And for those whom you have converted and drawn to yourself, Lord Jesus, we are thankful. And we want to make sure that they hear that. And so, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to posture ourselves at those people only because we've been to the cross. And because we've understood what it was that you've done for us in, in our stead. Would you do that? We would be a healthier community if you did. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.